please join me in the responsive call to worship. The risen Christ lives among us, calling us to be a blessing. The risen Christ lives among us, calling us to be a blessing. Christ lives among us, calling us to be a blessing. Let us worship the Lord our God. Please be in a spirit of prayer with me. We thank you, God, 
for this amazing day for the trees and the flowers, the buds and the blossoms, for the blue sky and the yellow sun, for everything you have created so that we may know your spirit. Be with us in this time of praise and prayer and worship. May your presence, holy God, lift us and support us Turn our mourning into dancing and our despair into hope. Let us now be in a time of silent prayer as we allow God to know our vulnerability and our humanness. Let us pray. in the name of our Savior Jesus Christ and the congregation joins together saying Amen. And now please join me in the prayer of preparation and confession. God, we confess that we do not have you all figured out, but we act as if we do. We do not wait with patience for your words of wisdom and direction. We raise your banner high, but do our own will. Have mercy on us who love you, but have not been able to separate our desire for power, our desire to make the rules, our desire to speak for you from your calling on our lives. Help us, O oh God to remember that we are sheep who go astray, in need of a shepherd to guide us home. In Jesus' name, amen. In the dark days after Jesus' death, Jesus never left his disciples. In all that we have, all that we do, Jesus never leaves us. Jesus provided abundance for the disciples on the beach and will also, through God's mercy, provide for us if only we allow him. Be assured that God's love will embrace each and every one of us and that through acknowledgement of our shortcomings, we are forgiven. Thanks be to God and go in peace. You all now to stand as you're able and to greet one another, all those around you.
morning to everyone. I'm glad you're here today. And yes, indeed, the sun has decided to come out, apparently, as I look through the stained glass windows. I'm Don Ashburn. I welcome you here to Piedmont Community Church, and I want to thank Reverend Dottie Hutch for serving as our liturgist today, and Amy McKenzie is our soloist, and Jim Warren has appeared now behind the curtain to show his face. He is our, our guest musician today as well. And uh, at this moment, I'd like to ask those of you who are sitting in the center of the aisles to, to pull out the pew pads that are there and to take a pen or a pencil and write down your name or, and your address or any way we can be in touch with you, especially if you have some change in address or contact information. And if you're a visitor, special welcome to you. We're so glad you're here today. Um, as it says in the announcements, uh, a number of our folks are over at Imani Community Church this morning. That is where Dr. McNabb is and our choir and Steve Maine. This is our uh, Sunday where two Sundays out of a year we worship with our sister congregation. And so that's why we were showing a video earlier about what's going on at Imani. And so we're thankful that we can worship in two places today. The screen is up here, though, really for a reason that tonight at 7 o'clock we'll be showing a, uh, a film which is called One Voice. It's a Piedmont Forum, so invite your friends and neighbors to come. It's, it's free of charge, although donations can be made to the Oakland Interfaith Gospel Choir. They're an amazing group. How many of you have had a chance to hear the, the Oakland Interfaith Gospel Choir sing? They're fantastic, terrific, world-renowned one of the best choirs in what's called contemporary gospel music. This film is a documentary about them, the history, and how they fit into the broader history of contemporary gospel music, a lot of which was started or got going here in Oakland and in the East Bay. And so please come tonight. It should be fantastic. Some of the folks in the film will be here to talk to us as well. On May the 11th, that is next Saturday, before Mother's Day, we are going to be joining together down for a, a Hope Cafe at City Team Ministry. This is an opportunity for us, anyone, to go and serve homeless people in a restaurant kind of environment. Something that we get accustomed to in our own lives, City Team, once a month, is having inviting people from the streets to come in and to be treated as as honored guests, to have people serve them, you know, in, in uh, uniforms like uh, waiters and waitresses. And so please sign up and come and join us. Uh, I can't wait to do it myself. This will be my first time as well. Also on the 19th of May, we'll have the Bricks Ceremony, where the, the Alexander Foundation, those are Alexander Circle, those who have given to the endowment campaign over the last few years, you know, we have those bricks in the courtyard, and we'll be unveiling those followed by an endowment seminar put on the same day um, with Jeff Tachiki coming to speak about that. At this point, I want to invite Jen McKillips to come forward and to share some of the good news that uh, she is able to give us from our mission partner, Project Peace. She's the director of it, Project Peace East Bay. We work with them very often with our service projects, service days, and she's going to be sharing now about that. Morning. Like Don said, I'm Jen McKillips, Director of Project Peace East Bay, and just wanted to come this morning to say thank you for your support of our organization and just to talk really briefly about the work that we do. Um, Project Peace was founded around 12 years ago by a church in Berkeley that looked around and 
saw a lot of churches and a lot of them not necessarily talking to each other about the good work that they were doing and really figuring out a great way for us to collaborate with local social service providers. Um, and then also seeing a number of social service partners, um, homeless shelters, mentoring programs, schools, that really didn't have an easy way to access people in faith communities um, for a myriad of reasons. And so what we did was build a bridge between the two to make it really, really easy for people in their sort of normal workaday life to be able to engage in social service initiatives locally in a really easy, simple way. Um, so the ways that we do that are, are threefold. One is through our network. We just know a lot of local service, social service partners that are up to really great work in the East Bay, and we know a lot of churches, so we're able to sort of marry those, those pieces together. So if you're a church who's interested in, in learning more about fostering children, we have an agency that we can connect you to. If you want to learn more about the refugee crisis right here in Oakland, we can connect you to agencies who are on the ground doing those things. The second thing that we're known for is our annual speaker series where we talk about um, a justice topic that's pertinent to the East Bay through the lens of faith. And, and we bring in any number of both national and internationally renowned speakers and with local partners to talk about how people can engage locally. And then finally, the thing that we're probably most known for are quarterly days of service where we enable volunteers to get up close and personal with the work of homeless shelters, mentoring programs, and schools to be able to roll up their sleeves and be the hands and feet of Jesus in their local communities um, in really simple ways. We handle all the logistics. You sign up, and we take care of the rest. Um, and then you serve at a school and show up with people in your community who maybe just don't go to the same church as you but care about some of the same issues that you do. Um, and through that process, we're able to really bolster and um, just leverage our network to be able to help those agencies that we're, we're partnering with. Our last day of service, we had over 35 different congregations serving with us at around 20 sites, and we were able to mobilize 500 volunteers. And those hands and feet really make a difference to the schools and homeless shelters that we partner with. Um, I was talking to Selma in the back, and I know our next day of service is June 1st, and she's hoping that the, the Piedmont community would really show up at Garfield Elementary, which is a school that's a, a special school in Oakland for newcomer students. It has, it's one of the, it's the second largest elementary school in Oakland. About 85% of those students are ESL learners, and they also are on free and reduced lunch. So this is a community of students and families whose parents can't raise a half a million dollars in their PTA fund, and they can't necessarily show up at the end of the day because they're probably working two or three jobs to make ends meet with their families and literally don't know the systems that, um, that they've found themselves in in Oakland, California. So again, thank you for your support of our work and would ask each of you to consider showing up for our next day of service and inviting your friends and neighbors to come and serve with you. It's a Jesus-inspired event, but not a Jesus-forward event, so it's really accessible to anybody who wants to come and serve with us. And thank you very much. Oh, <laughs> 
beginning. Let's turn now to the gospel lesson uh, for this morning. It comes to us from the 21st chapter of John. It's really one of my favorite passages in the Old Testament. It's actually kind of interesting, too, because um, this 21st chapter of John was most likely added a few years after the original Gospel of John was complete with chapter 20. So either John, the writer of the Gospel, or one of his followers added this kind of as an epilogue, as a coda, because of the way that chapter 20 ends with Jesus being resurrected and kind of going away, some loose ends were there. And so this was added to help uh, the early church and now all of us to understand better what it means to be post-resurrection followers of Jesus. So now let's listen together as I read the, this passage from the 21st chapter of John, verses 1 through 19. Listen for God's word to you today. So after these things, stuff that had happened before, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, also called the Sea of Galilee. And he showed himself in this way. Gathered there together were Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of the disciples. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. They went out and they got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just after daybreak, Jesus stood on the beach, but the disciples didn't know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, have you no fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net at the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because there were so many fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on some clothes, for he was naked, and he jumped into the sea. But the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, only about a hundred yards off. When they had gone ashore, they saw a charcoal fire there with fish on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and he hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And though there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was, Je it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and he gave it to them and he did the same with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my lambs. A second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? 
Peter felt hurt because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you used to fasten your own belt and go wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will fasten a belt around you take you where you do not wish to go. He said this to indicate the kind of death by which he, Peter, would glorify God. After this, Jesus said to him, follow me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy God, we pray that you'll grant us the eyes to see and the ears to hear and the hearts and minds to understand your world as best we can as your disciples. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So having the uh, screen up here will remind you of what happened last Sunday in this sanctuary. How many of you were here for Mexico Sunday? Raise your hand. Great. It was fantastic. It was a great experience. I mean, I think the film that we showed last week which is now available on our website, was probably the best film I've ever seen of the work project, the work teams that we do every uh, spring break down in Mexico. And the, the stories were, that were shared were fantastic as well. And it all brought me back to a time when I actually was, you know, way back in the dark ages, when I was 16 years old, and I was a junior in high school down in San Diego, I got to go on a Mexico trip too. And while most of the other groups, because there were a ton of them from all over Southern California, all these other groups were down there like our kids building houses, you know, hammering nails and putting up walls and all that kind of stuff. My church youth group, though, because we were from San Diego, so we went to build houses on weekends sometimes. Our church sent a youth group that I was part of to perform a musical play in Spanish called Breakfast in Galilee. So, as you might imagine, it was based on the same text I just read to you. It was written by a guy named Sonny Salisbury, who was my youth minister, as well as, at the time, a really well-known figure in the world of contemporary Christian music. So, we were down there singing, and the whole experience was amazing. We got to sing in, you know, village squares and churches. We even got to sing in a couple of prisons, including a youth prison. And altogether, it was an incredible week for me, life-transforming, and it probably had a lot to do, when I look back on it, of why I became a minister, following up on that experience. But what I want to tell you about is the next time I got to perform Breakfast in Galilee. It was about six months later, and my church youth group was going to perform it in an orphanage that my church ran down in Tijuana. Unfortunately, the guy who played Jesus before from our youth group was not available. So, the problem was he was perfect for the part. He had the scraggly long hair and a beard. I don't know how he did that when he was only 17 years old, but he did. And he didn't seem to have any problem at all standing up for 10 minutes with his arms tied to this cross with nothing around his waist but a cloth. That's what it takes to play Jesus sometimes. 
So somebody else had to play Jesus. So the word got out, and for some reason, God only knows, I volunteered to do it. And of course, the whole week before the performance, I was a nervous wreck. I mean, first of all, I had to overcome my natural shyness, which was really a big deal to me when I was a teenager, to play the part in front of other people. And then I had to wrap my head around the idea that somehow I was supposed to be Jesus in front of other people. Well, to make a long story short, along with all the angst, it worked out okay. The play went on, and it was fine, thanks to a wonderful audience of Mexican uh, kids and their caregivers. And also, <clears throat> thank God I got to wear bicycle shorts under my loincloth. And also had these big cue cards <laughs> that people would hold up to help me if I forgot my lines as Jesus. Imagine that. Anyway, when I think back on what it felt like for me to play Jesus on stage, I can't help but wonder what it was like for those original disciples in the days and weeks after Easter, after Jesus himself was resurrected. What was it like for them? Now, to put it into context, <clears throat> in the previous chapter of the Gospel, John chapter 20, the risen Christ appears to the, well, to ten of the disciples in the upper room there in uh, Jerusalem, the first on Easter day, the evening of that day, he appears to them and he says to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. Just think about those words for a second. As the Father has sent me, Jesus says, so send you. It's kind of a big deal. In Latin, the word for send is missio, from which we get the word mission. So just as Jesus had a mission to embody and to build up the kingdom of God on earth, you and I have the exact same mission. That is, we are sent into the world not just to play Jesus, but to be Jesus. Now, I know that sounds a little crazy, impossible. I mean, Jesus was the sinless Son of God, and God knows we're a bunch of fallible, sinful people who stumble and struggle and flail about and fail all the time. But guess what? That is exactly how the first disciples were after Jesus was resurrected. Exactly the same. For example, just look at Peter. Now he gets a, kind of well known in the New Testament, the Gospels, for some of the things that he does and some of, you know, some of his stumbling around and fumbling around and flailing and failing himself. But Jesus chooses Peter to be the leader of the other disciples. Of all people. And Peter then becomes the model of discipleship for everybody else who follows, including us. So, the text that I just read, John chapter 20, it is clear 
right from the start that things are not going very smoothly for Peter on his mission or anything else. He and six of the other disciples, they decided to leave Jerusalem, where they had been, the last place they had seen the risen Christ. They traveled by foot at least a week all the way back home to Galilee. They're out there on boats on the Sea of Tiberias, or as they said, the Sea of Galilee, and they're fishing. Now, it's possible that, you know, John means this symbolically, you know, that they're trying to do what Jesus told them to do after his resurrection, which is, quote, fish for people. That's a metaphor, of course. Or maybe, maybe they're just doing what they do best, which is to fish for fish. But either way it is, all night long they're out there on the sea and they are utterly unable to catch any fish. And then a voice from the shore calls out to them and tells them, well, guys, put your nets in the other direction. And in a flash, they capture all these fish, more than they could ever imagine, more than they could possibly hold in their boat. And so when that happens, they realize that the voice from the shore was Jesus. So they pull in their nets, they rush to shore, and as Peter dries off from his hasty dip in the lake, Jesus serves them breakfast. A breakfast of bread, a breakfast of fish that he has cooked over a charcoal fire. And then he asks Peter three times, And I want you to try to remember the last time that Peter was asked three questions right next to a glowing charcoal fire. Do you know when it happened? It happened before. It was just a few weeks before, or eight chapters earlier in the Gospel of John, before Jesus is arrested. Peter says, I will always follow you. I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus replies to Peter, will you? Very truly, I tell you, what? Before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. And then a couple of hours later, after Jesus, Jesus is already taken into custody, Peter is standing be, beside a charcoal fire in the courtyard of the high priest. And he's asked three times, do you know Jesus? And three times he denies that he even knows him. So, that act of betrayal isn't just in the background of what's going on at that uh, breakfast in Galilee that I just read, you, read to you. No, it's right in the forefront. It's something that Peter and Jesus and the rest of them could not avoid. Peter's threefold denial of Jesus. So you can imagine that. What is it like for Peter to be asked three times, do you love me? In that context. I don't know about you, but I've kind of been there myself. I don't know about three times being asked, but yeah, I have done something bad betrayed somebody else in some way, 
big or small. We all have done that. And then the guilt lingers like a fog. Especially when you confront or are confronted by that other person. And sometimes that person might come up to you and say to you, do you love me? And like Peter, you stammer out, yes, you know I do. And you expect maybe the other person to just blast you with something like, well, if you love me, you wouldn't have done that to me. Right? That's how it's supposed to happen. But that's not what Jesus does at all. When Peter says, yes, I love you, you know that I do, Jesus responds not with resentment or anger or judgment. He responds with a reminder of the mission that Peter has. He says simply, feed my sheep. Tend my lambs. That is, even with all of Peter's serious faults and foibles, Peter still, or Jesus still chooses Peter, and he sends him out to embody the good news of grace and mercy and peace and love and healing. All of this is taken together comes out in this story. Peter the failure is also Peter the disciple and the model for all the rest of us too in concrete acts of love. So, how does Peter react? We don't know exactly, but I would imagine that Peter reacted to Jesus' grace and mercy and forgiveness and, and sending him out on a mission with relief joy, and maybe a sense of wonder. Who is this guy who can forgive even something bad that I did to him? And maybe Peter jumps back in the lake again. I don't know. It doesn't say. But I do know that what happens with Peter is the rest of his life, he goes out and he gives everything he has, even his own life. Remember, he is actually crucified in Rome later in his life which is what that other passage about uh, being led around by a belt is all about. He is crucified. He gives his life to serve and to love Jesus and the people who Jesus loves, which, if you think about it, includes every single human being on this planet, especially the, the most vulnerable people. So what does love like that look like? I don't know. It's not an easy question to answer. It's not simple. So I was glad last week when Bob Hoseman from our church, he sent out an email to a bunch of people this week that had a list of definitions of love given by elementary school kids in some sort of a competition. So eight-year-old Rebecca says this. When my grandmother got arthritis, she couldn't bend over and paint her toenails anymore. So my grandfather does it for her all the time even when his hands got arthritis too. That's love, she writes. Seven-year-old Bobby says, love is what's in the room with you at Christmas if you stop opening presents and just listen. And the winning definition of love came from a four-year-old boy whose next-door neighbor was an elderly man who had just lost his wife. And on seeing the man cry next door, this little kid went around and 
and went into the man's yard, and he came up to him, and he jumped in the guy's lap, and he just sat there. His mother asked him later on, what did you say to the neighbor? And the little boy said, nothing. I just helped him cry. That's a pretty good definition of love, if you ask me. It's being present and attentive and taking the risk to meet someone at their own level and in their own time of need. And that brings me to something that Jesus said to his disciples on the last night of his life. I give you a new commandment that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. Did you ever sing the song, they'll know that we're Christians by our love? That's where that comes from. That's what it is to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. That's what it is to feed his sheep. And that's what it looks like to be Jesus Now, as I said before, there's an obvious objection to this, and that is that no one is really going to be exactly like Jesus, okay? No one else, not even the most loving, self-sacrificial person in the whole world can ever be exactly like Jesus, let alone going around telling the people you meet, hey, I'm Jesus, what are they going to do? They're going to lock you up. I get that. But I also remember a story, and uh, some of you probably remember it too. It's about a little boy who's afraid to go to sleep. So his mom says a prayer with him, and she tucks him in bed, and she shuts out the light and shuts the door and goes back to her room. And then a little while later, there's a knock on her door. And who is it? It's a little boy. Up and says, Mommy, I can't sleep. She takes him back to her, his bed, puts him in, and she says to him, You know what? Don't worry, sweetie. Jesus is going to take care of you. She goes back to her room. Before you know it, he's back. Ring a bell for anybody? He's back. Jumps in the bed with her. She takes him back to his room. She says, don't be scared, just ask Jesus to be with you. And the little boy replies, that's what I'm doing. I just think I need Jesus with skin on. Don't we all? That's one of the best definitions I have ever heard about what it means to be a Christian. What it means to be a Christian. Being Jesus with skin on. Do we do it all the time? Of course not. We don't do it all the time. Just look at Peter in the Bible if you want an example of somebody who screws up. Look at me. Look at anyone. We are not always Jesus with skin on, but we try. At least we should. A lot of you heard the story this past week about a guy named Terry McGrath. Terrence McGrath. He's taken in two homeless folks named Greg Dunstan and Marie McKenzie to live 
on his property here in Piedmont. And the newspaper headline in the Chronicle predictably reports breathlessly that his house is worth $4 million. And it also points out that the Piedmont Police Department has been, has received phone calls from neighbors reporting on the activities of these two, I guess, suspicious-looking black folks just hanging around in our town. But that's not really the point of the story. In fact, it's just a, a small part of the story. Because what it's really about is why. First of all, why do we have such a homeless problem all around us, and why, do, why aren't we all working together to fix it? But secondly, why is it that uh, Terry McGrath decided to risk getting involved in the lives of these two people that he doesn't know from Adam? Seems that he read about them earlier, in, back in February, in a newspaper column that told their story and heard it. And he uh, got in touch with somebody who knew them, set up a coffee with them at a, at a, at a place down in downtown Oakland, got together, and he decided to open up his home to them. And here's why, he says. It's helped me, helped bring me back to my roots as a young kid. That he actually grew up one of nine children in a very poor family up in uh, Napa County. I cannot avoid the responsibility I have to life around me. I have a personal obligation to take responsibility when I see injustices. And to me, this is a clear injustice. <clears throat> now, I don't know Terry McGrath. Some of you do. So I don't know whether or not he's a practicing Christian going to church or whether he thinks he's following Jesus or anything. It doesn't really matter. What matters <clears throat> is that somehow, through some combination of his own life experience and the formative relationships he's had in life and, and his own practice and his own resolve to do something, he became the sort of person who is capable of seeing injustice, letting it touch his own relatively safe life, comfortable life, and taking the risk to reach out to two incredibly vulnerable people. Don't get me wrong, I am not saying we should all now go take homeless people into our own homes. Maybe you're led to do that, maybe you aren't. Maybe it's not even the right thing to do or possible for you. It may not even be the right solution to homelessness, by the way. I know it isn't. It's such a complicated problem. But to become the kind of person who is capable of seeing what is going on all around you and who's ready to take the risk to be Jesus with skin on? That is something every single one of us is called to do, whatever circumstance we find ourselves in. And you know, it's not, a, not just up to you and me to do it on our own as individuals. Spiritual and moral development is actually a team sport. We do it together. And the church, any church, and our church, as the local branch of the body of Christ is where we practice 
being Jesus and sharing stories and hearing stories from our faith tradition and from each other and learning from one another, this is the place where we practice. Stanley Hauerwas, who's a great Christian writer, uh, writes this. Do the teaching, support, sacrifice, worship, and commitment of the church Utterly ordinary people are enabled to do some rather extraordinary, even heroic acts, not on the basis of their own gifts and abilities, but rather by having a community capable of sustaining Christian virtue. The church enables us to be better people than we could have been if left to our own devices. do that? No. But still we try. And we should keep on trying. So right now I'm going to just pause for a moment or two here with you, you the church, and in this place. I'm pause. And I'm going to use this big screen as a bit of a prop. A device. What I want you to do is either look at this screen, which is kind of a blank slate, or you can close your eyes and do it that way. But what I want you to do is to project some images onto either this screen or the screen of your own closed eyes, whatever you choose. And first, I want you to imagine Peter, Jesus, by the lake. Shift, as you're able, shift the scene to something in your own life. Has someone ever acted as Jesus with skin on for you? You ever felt that touch? Heard that voice? Felt that presence? What was it like? Jesus for somebody else? Is there a situation in your life right now where you can or you should be Jesus for somebody else? I don't expect you to leave this place with a final answer to any of those questions, but I want you this today and this week to, to ponder those questions. What was it like for the original disciples? What has it been like for you to experience Jesus? What would it be like for someone else to experience Jesus in you? I'm going to close this morning with something that Rachel Held Evans wrote. Rachel was a brilliant Christian writer and teacher, a best-selling author, some of my 
dear friends who were very close friends of hers, and she died yesterday. She died at the age of 37. She was 37 years old. She died of unexpected complications arising from an infection, leaving behind two little kids and a husband. But in her short but incredible life, inspiring life, she caught something essential about what it is to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. She writes, This is what God's kingdom is like. A bunch of outcasts and oddballs gathered at a table, not because they're rich or worthy or good, but because they're hungry. They said yes. So as we prepare ourselves this communion Sunday to come to the table in a few minutes to take the bread and the drink from the cup, this is a meal that Jesus has prepared for us. You might even call it breakfast in Piedmont. I don't know. Whatever it is, we are called to this table so that we can keep saying yes. Yes, to love and to service and to, to seeing and to being Jesus for other people. And seeing people, too. And listening to other people.
Brothers and sisters, this is the joyful feast of the people of God. The Bible tells us that people will gather from east and west and north and south to sit at table in the kingdom of God. We, we also hear that story, a well-known story to, to us now, that on the day of resurrection, that first day of resurrection, Jesus appeared to those disciples in the upper room and said, I send you to, as the Father sent me, so I send you. He also appeared on a road with two other disciples that didn't recognize him. They walked for a long time to this place called Emmaus. And as they're walking and talking, they don't have a clue who this guy is. And then they finally sit down. He takes bread. He breaks it. He gives it to them, and their eyes are open. And they recognize that Jesus is with them. May we also, in this time, may you, no matter who you are, what, what you've done in your life, where you come from, anything, you too are welcome here to the feast that's been prepared. So let's join together now in the great thanksgiving. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. Let's pray. Therefore, God, and the entire company of angels and saints on heaven and on earth, we do worship and glorify you, God most holy, evermore praising you and saying, Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your splendor. All glory be to you, O Lord most high. Lord most high, come to be with us in this low place, this ordinary, everyday place with everyday, ordinary people like us. And by your spirit, take these elements of bread and the fruit of the vine as we take them into our bodies. Help us to also embody Jesus Christ to each other and to our world. For we pray in his name. Amen. Please be seated. And hear now the words of institution of our Lord's Supper. On the night of his betrayal and arrest, our Lord Jesus was at table with his disciples in a place called, what we call now the upper room in Jerusalem. He took the bread that was before them, and he blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it to them, and he said, take, eat, this is my body broken for you. Whenever you eat of this, do it remembering me. The same way he took the cup, he said, this is the cup of the new covenant which is sealed in my blood for the forgiveness of sin, for all the world's sins to be forgiven. Whenever you drink of this, do it remembering me. So, brothers and sisters, whenever we eat together and drink at this table or any other table among the believers of Jesus Christ, all of us together, whenever we do this, we are professing, proclaiming the life and the death and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus and looking forward to that day when all of God's children, everybody is gathered together around one table in the kingdom of God to share the feast that's been prepared. So I invite you now to join with me and we'll pray together the words our Lord has taught us, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. 
you'll receive the elements of uh, communion by intinction. That means if you come down the center aisle and tear off a piece of bread and dip it in the cup yourself, and then return by the side aisle to your pew. So now come for all is made ready. The gifts of God for the people of God.
as we do each time we celebrate communion here in our church, at Kinlock Community Church, I invite you to join in reading or reciting the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still water. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So, brothers and sisters, as you leave this sanctuary, this place of comfort, this place of challenge, take with you whatever it is that you have received from the Spirit of God that allows you to become the person capable of serving others as Jesus with skin on and receiving that same blessing and seeing Jesus in others as well, as best as you can, even as poor Peter could who was a stumbling, bumbling disciple, we also somehow are given the grace to be Jesus and to see Jesus as well. So as you leave this place, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be and abide with each and every one of you, both now and forevermore. Amen.